0: Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests,
1: and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All Things Crime. I'm Jared. I've got uh, my man Tom Myers with me today. We are excited about some stuff that we've uncovered about a former guest and good friend of the show and also an an amazing story behind, I mean, tragic story, but also a a big MBAC story as well. So we're going to intertwine all of that, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Chris Tapp case. And if you haven't heard, Chris Tapp actually passed away about a month or six weeks ago or something like that. And, you know, so here we are toward the end of 2023 and chris tap is gone and what a tragedy that is just in the fact that he's uh, no longer with us but also um just i I mean as as we review his life and and what all happened i i think this is one of those that i think should be a case study for lots of law enforcement agencies on basically what not to do i mean it's not not just the law enforcement, but the the entire justice system. And who knows what happened after he was actually released. So the bottom line is, if you don't know the Chris Tapp story, this is a young man that uh, in 19, I believe it was 96, right, Tom? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to the show again, by the way. <laughs> Good to be here, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You no, know, I just started plowing into it, man. Forgot all, forgot all about bringing you in. Anyway... You know, I mean, Chris Chris Tapp was one of those guys that was wrong place, wrong time, wrong everything. And the more the more we re- review his story, and and you know, it's been done over and over and over. And and the focus was on the tragedy. And and I don't I don't want to make this into like a you know a big drama, and I definitely don't want to you know hammer on the the investigators too much today. But at the same time. I think taking the, an, a somewhat objective view of what really happened and kind of how, you know, the, the, the police ended up focusing on him. But let's, let's do a little, a little background here just to bring everybody up. In case you haven't heard of Chris Tapp, he was a, basically a 17, 18-year-old in, back in 1996. And there was a young girl named Angie Dodge. She was three weeks out of high school and lived in Idaho Falls, Idaho, you know, back in the nineties, Idaho Falls was just a a beautiful little town, probably less than 50,000, you know, somewhere 40,000, somewhere around there on the Southeast corner of Idaho, just an absolute amazing area, amazing people, super safe area that I'm sure most people didn't even lock their doors, let alone you know, their cars and things like that. We just, back in uh, those days in Idaho, we just didn't worry about it. You know, a lot of crime just wasn't in the cards. It was, it was just a really safe area to to live in. And so when Angie Dodge was murdered, it sent shockwaves through the entire community and Angie was raped. She was stabbed multiple times, I think uh, 16 times and She was. I mean, her throat was slit. The perpetrator had actually used her teddy bear to muffle her screams. And you know, this was in a a little apartment that she was in on a second floor, and she'd only been in there just a matter of days, if and possibly you know just a couple of weeks. So hadn't been in there very long when she was murdered, and it was horrible. And so, but as as many of you know, as you're. Living in a small community, when something this horrific happens, especially to a young innocent girl that is just starting out in her life, the demand for justice rings very loudly, and that is absolutely what happened with with Angie's murder. And they went at it, and you know they they narrowed down onto a few a few um, suspects, and Chris Tap was one that they really focused on, and and he was just a young kid. Was had no idea really that he was even a suspect initially. And by the time he was actually in court and being charged, he was in a bad way. And he ended up serving 20 years. He was convicted and ended up serving 20 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And if, if you're not super familiar with, with this case, again, he, we actually interviewed him geez man it was it had to be two two almost three years ago so you could go back into the archives of the all things crime and find his episodes in there and and just wondering what a remarkable man he was because even after being held in prison for 20 years on for a crime he didn't commit he still had a pretty amazing attitude and that's that's really what caught my eye about it i mean the the fact that the mvac helped Helped him be, helped get him out at least, you know, help him get the Alford plea. And then the police were able to focus on genealogical DNA and help him get out. But Tom, there were a lot of things that you said you have researched and and looked at, especially once we found out that Chris had passed away. So what's your initial thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, I took this one on, Jared, because I knew you had a personal stake in this, having... Um, gone up to Idaho and bringing the M back up there for part of the exoneration on it. So I know this one's a personal thing for you. And I'm aware of the exoneration that took place, but I don't have that personal beef into it. So I wanted to look at this entire matter objectively without watching the videos or seeing the slants or the YouTubes uh, against the police or anything else. And I wanted to understand how this thing happened. So maybe we can bring up some solutions in the future and explain to people. And it seems to be divided on political lines or belief lines. There's either a bad guy on one side, the police set him up, or there's a bad guy on the other side saying, well, he had to have done something on this. So how did that happen between those, that cross transferal And maybe I can shed some clarity on what I found and just Looking through this, and maybe some insights or anything else. So, with that, I'll bring us back to 1996 when Angie gets an apartment. She's 18 years of age, self sufficient. Mom lives in the town still. Like you said, about 50,000 up to maybe 150 or so now is what Idaho Idaho Falls has. Police department, pretty contemporaneous in as much as training and things like that. I'm not sure if they have a coroner or if they have a an m e m medical examiner system out in in idaho but um there are resources and there are training and all sorts of things at play when you have competing interests for the police time and what happens on this okay so let's go back to 1996 we have this horrific um rape homicide that takes place with the numerous stab wounds that happened to angie dodge in her apartment in idaho falls and this happens in the summer of 96. no one uh, is developed as a subject or a suspect until uh, January of 97, when one of Chris Tapp's friends, Benjamin Hobbs, is arrested down in Eli, Nevada, about 400 miles away for a similar, similar type crime. Now, I have read a few documents here, most notably the comprehensive report by Judges for Justice, but also, uh, Idaho Innocence Project and, uh, and a couple of treatises and, and missives on this. And so, um, I'm very familiar with it. I'm trying to blind myself to 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 the bias that's in here and the darts that are being thrown at the police. And I'm trying to say, okay, how did we get to this point? We do know at this looking back on this and what jumps out at everybody right away is that seven police officers being sued, I guess, now by the estate of Chris. But at, at the time, that's what was happening with the Idaho Falls. But I'll also add that to the credit If you want to call it that, Idaho Falls took charge and took ownership of this when they saw they had a problem and they investigated it rather thoroughly. So, you know, kudos there. They're trying to right or wrong, which is obviously what happened to Chris in this case because he was exonerated. And when the actual offender, Brian Drips, comes forward, he states that he's the sole perpetrator in this this offense. So how does this happen? He becomes the, the target or the subject of the investigation when an associate of Chris's is arrested for a very similar rape that takes place down in Eli, Nevada. To this day, you can still see internet uh, references to Hobbs being a sexual predator. Nothing's currently in the system, but that's what probably would happen in '96. So, the amount of focus, a lot, a lot like the Colberger attack that happened over, is is off the scale in a small town with limited resources and what happens is it just paralyzes the community at that time so you're 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 getting it from both. if you don't bring a subject forward the amount of pressure is what i'm saying if you don't bring a subject forward you don't develop something on this you're not taking aggressive police work on this you're going to be called inept keystone cops lazy stupid all sorts of things is subject to it but when you do take action on it with you have the that magic time period you're held under that same sort of uh spotlight. And you can make mistakes on this. And we can also Monday morning quarterback it because technology changes. In 96, we needed something about the size of a quarter for DNA that took place. So are there shortcomings in the criminal investigation of it that are brought forth, for example, not getting the temperature of the body on the scene? Yes, there are in a perfect world. I don't know whether the coroner or the ME responded to the scene too, and what the delay was on something like that. But that is what erodes an investigation. And in a perfect world, you would have police officers that have to undergo a level of training akin to about a year long and where they stay and they have the resources to work this. There's never a shortage of overtime or anything like that. So from all accounts, I think these guys work this pretty hard. And when they... They tried to establish a rapport when they sat down with him on this, on at least the three interviews, I'm going to call it that. So around January 7th, January 10th, and I believe shortly thereafter, on a scheduled interview after Chris Tapp gets himself an attorney and he invokes, he doesn't show up for that other, the next interview, and that's when they get a warrant and they arrest him. I could have that incorrect. What, happened, what happens is you're looking across. When somebody goes to get it, let me back up. In small-town America, everybody is very compliant and agreeable. They want to solve this. When somebody's not or somebody runs and gets an attorney, that's a tell. I don't care what you're entitled to as you want to be cooperative and you want to solve that. And If you have a personality, what I picked up on the interviews, uh, I'm sorry, the videotape of Chris over there and through his own self-admission, we have two factors at play here. He respects the police, he's humble and he's compliant and he's trying to assist with this investigation and the police are going to push that as hard as they can any good aggressive investigator is going to push that to figure out and find an anomaly in what he's saying by his and I'm careful about what I say because I don't want to speak ill of the dead or anything like that but by Chris's own admission on one of the videotapes he admits to some drug use well will you get involved in that you're into tradecraft. It's an entirely different life because you're hiding that from somebody. Well, when you're hiding something from somebody, and we can argue all afternoon about what that means to, to have lack of candor or not be truthful, everybody does it to a degree. Nobody walks into a car dealership and says, I want to pay this amount of money. You know, it's always going to be some sort of holdback that takes place. But when you get in drugs, it's particularly acute. And he mentioned that portion of, of that and, now you're involved in tradecraft where you're having to hide something. So you really are used to having uh, a portion of your life have some deception to it. So he engaged in that deception is is my assessment of it. And when he did that, the police focus on this because the answer – I'm sorry. The question that we posed is, well, we know you're lying about that. What else are you lying about? So – in the read technique, which is cited in the Just, Judges for Justice document, that process, when he's engaging in this deception and they're pushing him, he gets involved. One of the interviewers is this former school resource officer who forms a bond with Chris, and Chris believes he can trust him. And that's what an investigation is all about. He's trying to get to the fact of it, and then Chris changes his story several times. Okay. Is it coercive? That's up for interpretation. It obviously wasn't coercive enough that it stopped the trial from going forward and going through the appeal process when it was looked at. There's 60 hours of interviews that are had that happened on this. Could somebody argue it was coercive after that? Well, everybody says that every you know interview, and every interview is going to be a very hard and aggressive sort of questioning. Did they use deception in it? Yes. But that's been allowed. The Supreme Court has, has ruled on that, that deception is allowed. Now certain states have, have afforded that. Can you fabricate evidence and present that? No, you can't. You can't do that. It's pushing it too far. That's generally been the rules on this. So did they say they had admissions from Brian Hobbs? I'm sorry, Benjamin Hobbs already? I, I believe that's what they said. That would in and did they say that you're going to get the electric chair or whatever the death penalty is in Idaho? They probably did that as well, as I read into the file over here. All of that creates a very intense atmosphere. And when you're used to telling stories or you're used to telling lies to get out of something, to maintain that persona, when you're into that – and I'm again, I'm being very careful about what I say about somebody who's deceased. You're used to telling somebody something to get them off your back. And he got himself involved in that, and so he – at the end of the day, what happened is he made admissions. He made several admissions, and he changed his story, and he changed his story enough where it irritated the the prosecutors to the point where they rescinded the um, immunity agreement that he engaged in. So he left himself very vulnerable all the way through. And what's astonishing to me is that he had an attorney along for the ride, but the attorney probably didn't know if he was being told the truth or not. Um, I say it's astonishing to me because I don't know what he was telling the attorney or not. That's, you know, of course, privilege information. Well, all of those things factor into this stew when they bring it to trial. The theory of the case was that he had something to do with it and that the DNA, when it was cleared of him, was the, the uh, co-conspirator, the, the co-offender in this case, which would have been uh, Benjamin Hobbs. As we know later on, it didn't happen. Let me take a break from that because I know at some point, Carol Dodge, Angie's mom, is the uh, advocate for Chris Tapp. Do you know why she started to believe him? Did, Did that ever come over to you or did you just get a phone call one day?
1: Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode Together, we will bring justice to every victim.